finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nick. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things, we talk about them. Andrea's my mom, and a librarian. I just uh, got vaccinated for earlier today, so I'm going to be exceptionally powerful in this recording. Uh... We read The Palm Wine Drinker by Amos Tutuola. I think that's how you say his name. The, well, if it's anything like the character from Law and Order, that's exactly how you say it. Well, he's, the character from Law and Order is named after him, I believe. I think that's it's true. It's Ice-T's character specifically, right? Yes, yes. He is a Nigerian writer. He's belongs to the Yoruba people. I don't know a ton about like Nigerian ethnic groups, but... He draws a lot on Yoruba folklore for this book. Uh, and this, The Palm Wine Drinker is actually, I think I misspoke when I announced it. It is the first, I think I said it was the f- first book written in Africa to be translated in English. That's not true. This was written in English in, the, in a specific dialect. But it is the first book to be written in Africa and published in English outside of Africa. So, it was published in 1952. Yeah. So. And then, I guess, Tutuola is, um, like you said, he's Nigerian, and he's affiliated with the Yoruba, I don't know if it's a tribe, or I mean, I, I've, I've just always just heard it called an ethnic group. I don't, like, I don't really know what that means specifically. But this group has a tradition of... Um, oral folk tales that's how they communicate and they share their history and they tell stories and you can really see the influence that that has on this book so Tutorello was he was born in 1920 and he died in 1997 and he lived his entire life in Nigeria he was a child servant which is how he was able to go to school he learned how to read and write and speak English when he was in school and he had sort of a really interesting career path um during world war ii he was a blacksmith for the army i think he was a blacksmith for the royal air force the royal air force and he held a lot of at um administrative positions and finally towards the end of his career he was a professor at one of the universities in nigeria yeah but i think when he was this is his first book i believe and yeah my understanding when he was writing this he was this was after he was done being a blacksmith, and he was, like, working odd jobs while he was working on this, this manuscript. Yeah, and like you said, he wrote in English, which makes it very interesting because he uses sort of like this... Well, you'll when you read the book, you'll realize the sort of... Well, I guess it's like... I've heard it described as pidgin, 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 but I don't fully understand what that term means, and I have a feeling that it is problematic despite... Uh, that I mean mostly hearing it in academic context. But yeah, there's like a, I don't know. I, the book has a very conversational dialect. It's written, I think, to read with the sort of rhythm and cadence of someone telling the story verbally. Like there's lots of like use of repetition and almost like, um, there's probably a better term for this, but like almost like nicknames, like descriptive nicknames for figures. Like he'll sort of, like, land on a specific combination of words that he uses to describe this, some a particular person or creature, and will use that collection of words over and over again in the same way that you might, if you were, like, talking about someone with some with another person. It kind that of reminded me, and I don't know, it like, it reminded me, like you said, like, of oral storytelling, but it sort of reminded me also of that sort of, like, um, traditional folk music with the callbacks. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, a person would tell a story and then the audience would be required to answer back to sort of become involved in the story. And I think it's the same way. But it's like, there's like, the thing that I'm talking about is like, there, there's like a specific thing in the book that he constantly refers to as the terrible or curious creature. And it has like, like that happens a lot. Which that feels like a very, like, unliterary, but not, that's, I'm not, I don't mean literary, like, as, like, a value term, but, like, as a stylistic thing. And more, sort of, like, 
oral and conversational. Yeah, and I think I think that's sort of, it kind of like I mean if you think about like the tradition of like storytelling like Gilgamesh and Beowulf and even the Canterbury Tales mm. how they started as oral stories and at some point they were written down it almost has a feel like that it has a very sort of traditional folklore feel to it. I wanted to bring up because I thought it was really interesting was that one of his early supporters was Dylan Thomas. Yeah, I think that Dylan Thomas had, like, a big hand in getting this published in America, I think. Uh, But, yeah, but that's... I I can kind of see, knowing his writing and his poetry and stuff, why this might appeal to him. I read this, and I hadn't read it before, and I I had not read anything by this author, so I found it to be very fascinating. But one of the things that I kept thinking about is this sort of movement in, like art specifically like primitism where it's supposed to be this sort of almost like outsider art where mm-hmm. Tutorola was not an you know an incredibly well educated man he was not a writer by trade and he just had the idea to write a book to keep it completely 100% honest and authentic to the way that he saw the world and i think it was very sort of avant-garde at the time because in the 50s you know that was the time of the big writer celebrity and people were like like Dylan Thomas but you know people were looking at artists like Henry Miller and still Hemingway and John Updike so they were looking at these sort of educated sophisticated writers and here comes Tutorola with this out of left field fantasy. I don't I can't I don't even know if it's fantasy or if it's sci-fi or if it's magical realism or I really can't I mean it kind of defies I think the closest we, weirdly we, we talked about something fairly recently that feels very similar to this like if I was going to compare it to a I guess like a European work it reminds me a lot of A Pilgrim's Progress. I've seen a lot of comparisons between this and a Pilgrim's Progress in other places. I don't know. I always feel iffy about talking about stuff like primitivism or calling stuff like this, like, even in a, like, neutral or complimentary way, like, unsophisticated or simplistic. It's just like, I don't know. It feels weird. I know that this, like, there was a lot of criticism from other African writers about this book and his some of his other works for being written in a style that they called unsophisticated or simplistic and for giving, like, there was this perception that a lot of them had that something like this being so prominent would give a kind of, um, you know, uh, just kind of give the wrong impression of African literature as being something that is, you know, sort of unsophisticated or primitive. But I think that this is, like, largely allegorical. I think there's a lot of, like... You know, symbolism and metaphor at work here that, like, I I tend to believe that the writing style is a s- deliberate stylistic choice designed to, like, reinforce the themes of this story. And it is told, like, it's told in first person, right? Yeah. From the perspective of the titular palm wine drinker, who is, like, this sort of weird dirtbag character who's, like... The story opens and he's like, I couldn't do anything. The only work I could do was drinking palm wine. Like, it's written from that the perspective of that guy who says and believes that thing. So it makes sense that, the, that it's written in the style that it is. Do you think it might be considered a picaresque novel? Uh, I guess kind of, yeah. I mean, in that it is about like a roguish character. It's very episodic. Pretty much every episode is about him getting one over on somebody. It's more... It's it's got a lot of elements of, like, a fairy tale, too. Like, it's very uh, supernatural in nature. There's lots of monsters and spirits. He has the palm wine drinker, or the, the father of gods, which is what he he says his name is at one point, is, has some, he has juju, he has magic power uh, that he uses on, at irregular intervals throughout the story. That's what... Some of the plot points really make me think that this might actually be, um, have, like, elements of magical realism. 
which is kind of like he has this sort of boastful quality of him talking about himself and things that he does. But basically the plot of the story is is that the palm wine drinkard is a rich man's son who is so wealthy that he gifts his son with a personal palm wine tapper who goes into the palm wine forest every day and taps the trees like kind of like when you tap for maple syrup except for the sap that comes out ferments so quickly that it almost instantaneously turns into alcohol yeah just to be clear it's a real thing palm wine's a real thing it really does ferment that fast it takes like i think like only a few minutes for it to get to like four percent alcohol and the longer you go the higher that gets and the more sour the wine becomes so like he's talking about in the beginning of the story that he's like basically drinking the palm like he basically uses palm wine to mean the actual fermented beverage and the palm sap just because it ferments so fast that there's basically no distinction between the two substances and he drinks an enormous amount of it like in the beginning of the story he boasts that he drinks 50 kegs so I don't know if it's the keg is like a traditional size keg like a beer comes in or if it's like a small personal cast like you would get like brandy in or something. But either way, 50 casts, even if it was like a cast equals a bottle the size of a bottle of wine, he's still drinking 50 of them a day. Yeah, but he's got a lot of friends in the beginning of the story because he has so much palm wine at his disposal. And the only thing he can do is drink palm wine and he's just like this sort of layabout. But he's beloved because... He's very generous with yeah. his wine. And then his tapper, tapster, tapper or tapster? I think he calls him the tapper. The tapper dies. Uh, he falls out of the tree while he's tapping a tree and dies. And then when the palm wine drinker comes upon him and sees that he's dead, he buries him at the foot of the tree. Yeah, and then uh, he loses all of his friends because he doesn't have any... He can't get the palm wine. He he can't can't... tap it as fast as the tapper did, so he doesn't have as much to give to people. Yes, and then, of course, because he's addicted to palm wine, he needs more and more of it to keep himself steady in the amount that he needs just to maintain his quality of life. Yeah, so then the bulk of what the story actually becomes about... The full title... Do you have the full title written down anywhere? I can pull it up. Because it has, like, it's, the book isn't always called The Palm Wine Drinkard, but it has, like, a uh, subtitle. Something like The Journey Into... It is The Palm Wine Drinkard and His Dead Palm Wine Tapster, there is an S and a T, in the Dead's Town. Uh, so he <laughs> decides that, like, he hears someone saying that the dead are still about somewhere in the world. That, like, he essentially learns of the concept of an afterlife. That you go somewhere when you die. And so he sets out on a journey to find his palm wine tapster. Presumably to bring him back so he can tap more palm wine for him. Uh, which is kind of fucked up if you think about it. Because he's this guy doesn't even get to escape his labor in death as far as the palm wine drinker is concerned. But I mean, I think this is the thing where, like, this is where the metaphors really start to come out. Like, uh, you can get out your bingo card. Uh, but it's, I'm not about to talk about Marxism or, or you know, like, colonialism. <laughs> I think the the other, you know, often used but slightly less often used square on the bingo sheet is that I think this is a story about coming to terms with the concept of death. Because it's essentially a story about a guy trying to figure out where people, what happens when you die. He spends the entire story looking for where his... Palm wine tapster went when he died, and it basically takes him his entire life to find him. He lives basically a whole life throughout the course of the story while looking for the palm wine tapster. And I think the most telling part is at one point he keeps asking people and doing stuff for people under the promise that they'll tell him where the palm wine tapster went. And at one point he does, he, he is told uh, that he's on a long journey to an uncertain place, which, like, yeah, he's dead. That makes sense as a description of like what's going on with someone who's dead. Well, I think the one of the reasons why I don't think this is an allegorical story is he never learns his lesson. He's just as willful and boastful and 
careless as he is the day one, as he is 20 or 30 years later when he actually returns back to his hometown. That's true, but what he does learn is, he does, spoiler alert, jumping way ahead in the story, he does find the palm wine tapster, and he learns that the deads and the lives, as they're called, can't live together, and that the the ways of the dead are inscrutable to the living, and he can't bring the palm wine tapster back. I mean, he learns, basically, that you can't know what it's like to be dead until you die, and you can't come back from the dead. Well, I think, I mean, this is basically the plot of the story is he goes on a multi-year journey where he meets many different magical creatures, Mm -hmm. and he has all these sort of side quests that he does. Even at one point, he gets a wife, and he travels all over Africa in the bush in different areas looking for answers about how to bring the tapster back. And at the end, when he finally meets the tapster, he realizes that the quest, he can't bring him back. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He learns that, like, death is permanent and that there's no way to... It's like this thing where it's like you're you're alive and you're anxious and you're constantly thinking about what happens when you die. And, like, this story is about going on this spiritual journey where you realize that, like, you have to stop worrying about it because there's no way to know. You can't know, you don't, you, it's impossible to know the ways of the dead in the dead's town. And you can't enter the dead's town while you're alive. So and he, but he like confronts death. There's a part where he sells his death to someone. And then for, for a good chunk of the story, he's immortal. But because he didn't sell his fear, he's still afraid of death. Yeah. And there's a lot of interesting things here. There's a sort of a lot of sort of, like you said, there's... A strong theme that is sort of coming to grips with, you know, your mortality. But then there's also a lot of questioning of what what happens in the afterlife. And then there's this sort of kind of like he doesn't understand like other people, which is kind of a problem for him. Because a lot of the problems he gets into is he misunderstands people's motives. Yeah. I mean, he is a very like self centered character the yeah. palm wine drinker um but he's very resourceful and when he does help people he is completely committed to helping people yeah no matter how weird or hard the task is he keeps helping them but he's also always got something he's going to be promised in return but there's a lot them. i think a lot of the characters in some way are stand-ins for either um, God and the devil, or the distinction between good and evil. And I think that's a common theme that runs through this story. He's always meeting either evil people that he has to thwart, or good people who help him. Yeah, yeah. Like, So let's talk a little bit about his wife. Uh, yeah, the way he meets his wife, that's my favorite episode in the story is he comes to this town and he's tasked with bringing back this young woman, the the daughter of the head of the town. Uh, She refused to marry a dude and got charmed by this handsome man that she met in the market who is referred to as the complete gentleman. Of course, he is. And then when she agrees to go with him back to his home, as they're walking back through the market, he keeps stopping at stalls and returning his body parts to the people that he rented them from. Until he's just a skull hopping around like a bullfrog. Uh, And it turns out that he's some kind of evil spirit that is just a skull. He lives with a family of other skulls in a hole. Yeah. And he uh, makes her sit on a frog... And his family will yell at her if she tries to escape. And he goes back into the village, and the palm wine drinker has to follow him back and hunt him down. There's a really funny part uh, in this where he's like, sees the complete gentleman, and he says uh, that he cursed God because he wasn't born as beautiful as this man. And then he remembered that he's just a skull. And he thanked God for not making him beautiful. So he decides that he's going to rescue this girl. Yeah. So then he goes and he rescues her. But there's some kind of like... She has a 
shell. It's just a cowardly shell around her neck that uh, just screams constantly if she's removed from the Skull family's house. That sounds so annoying. Yeah. It's like a supernatural alarm system that just keeps going. And then so he has to figure out a way to stop this shell from screaming. So he has to make a deal with the Skull family. Yeah. But I think, like, this thing with the, the daughter is, like, with the his wife and, you know, the daughter of the head of the village is, like, this, I don't think it's a great message, but I think what he's getting at there is, like, if you choose to be alone, eventually your only companion will be death as personified by a screaming skull <laughs> and his family. <laughs> like, and she has to sort of, like, in order to get over that and to develop this connection with another person through the palm wine drinker, she ha- they have to make this deal. Like, they have to deal with the concept of death. And with that, like, those the anxieties that would have driven, that drove her to be alone in the first place. Again, as personified by the Skull and his family. So he frees her. He releases her from the Skull family. He releases her from the shell. And then at one point she can't speak, so he has to go back. And get her voice back. And then when he does, he decides to marry her. And then yeah. she decides that she's going to go on the quest with him. So then they sort of, they're compatible. They don't really know each other, but they're compatible. And I think the weirdest part of the story, one of the weirdest parts is she... Are you talking about the the baby? Yes. So her thumb swells up, right? Her thumb? Yes, her Swells thumb. up really big and then births a baby Except the baby is, like, deformed, and it's actually, it knows how to talk immediately the second it's born, and it's, like, this evil spirit. Um, But the thing is, like, again, I think that this is a metaphor, this is an allegory, this is a story about, like, living. The nothing that the evil spirit does is really that different than what a regular baby does. It's hungry, it's loud, and hungry all the time, and it takes over their life. Like, functionally, it is just a regular baby, but they're tormented by it. They burn down their house... <laughs> to get rid of the to baby. To get rid of the baby, but it lingers as a, a, the half-bodied baby. It becomes the spirit, their guilt, over the death of their child, who they feel so feel guilty because when it was alive, they slightly resented it. And so then they travel a long time being hectored by the half-bodied baby who demands to be carried on the wife's head and makes all these unreasonable demands of them. And then they have like a funeral, essentially. They meet these dudes who may also be spirits or creatures who are called like drum song, drum dance and song or drum yeah. dance and laughter. But I mean, like they, they dance with the baby and like lead it to the premises of mud like, they have a big party and ritual and bury the baby in the ground and, like, bury their guilt and regret and are free from, and are free from the evil spirit. I think this is when it starts to dawn on me that this story reminds me a lot of the Odyssey. Yeah, it's definitely that similar, like, mythic journey with, like, the constant trials. Except he has his wife with him. They do get separated for a while at one point when she gets turned into a tree. Yes. There's lots of weird things that happen. She gets put in the... They meet a a farmer who gives them uh, crops that grow instantaneously, but for some reason they get driven from the land and they end up back on the road. Something... They always encounter these people and the people either quest them with doing something... Or they're trapped there with them, and it takes them a while to free themselves. Yeah, he got he for like, and there's constantly being waylaid for like years and months, like living in different places and doing stuff while they're ostensibly on this quest to find the palm wine tapster. Like at one point, he hires like an invisible servant who is the invisible like, pawn. Yeah, who who is also called give and take. Um. Who I think is like an embodiment of like capitalism or something. He like ruins their farm. Well, at one point he meets someone, a whole town of people called the Red People. And they have this sort of weird thing where they shave his head with all these different tools. 
because they want to murder him and he ends up killing the entire town. But doesn't he rescue them from the creatures that made them red? Yes. And they go into hiding because they're afraid of him, right? Because he kills the things and that's when his wife gets turned into a tree uh, and he has to look for her for a while. But he also gets his head shaved by them, and then he his hair grows back and is immediately shaved again. <laughs> yes. Yes, and meanwhile, every time he goes someplace and people ask who he is, he says he's the god of all knowing, and they always want him to help, and then he's kind of like, oh, why are all these people asking me to help them? Yeah, he calls himself, like, the father of God and, like, the knower of all things or something like that, or to which all things are known or something. And then he, like, shames himself. With his own name a lot, where, like, he'll be doing something, and he doesn't want to do it anymore, and then he's, like, remembers that he told these people that his name was the father of all gods, and he's like, well, if I, that's my name, I guess I kind of have to do this thing. Right. But, yeah, they spend a bunch of time in the bush, uh, and he weirdly, it all, he, like, almost advertises his next book in that part, because he's, I first uh, became aware from his narrator, probably when I was, like, in middle school or early high school. Specifically because there is a David Byrne and Brian Eno album called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which is named after his next book after this, which he references, like, directly. Like, he says, like, oh, yeah, like, there's the story of the Bush of Ghosts, and it's, like, he all but says, like, hey, check out my next book if you want to know more about this part of the story. But is it, it's not a sequel to this. No, no, but it's, like, dealing with a lot of the same concepts and stuff. Like, this sort of, like, mythic realm of, like, the bush that they spend a lot of time in, where there's, like, all of these different, like, settlements and creatures in the bush. And there's this idea at one point that gets brought up of, like, there are, you know, people and animals, and then there are creatures of the bush. Like, at one point, I think someone is scared because they think he might be a creature of the bush, or he's scared because he thinks someone might be a creature of the bush. So the story ends after all of these sort of trials that he goes through. He ends up going to the land beyond, which is the spirit world. And he meets the tapster. In the dead's town, yeah. In the dead's town. And then the tapster sort of finally makes him aware of, even though he's been questing so long to get there, to find him, to bring him back, to tap his own, his tap is palm wine trees. He tells him he can't come back, but he gives him a magic egg. Yeah. So then he finally goes back home to his town after 20 plus years, and people are like, whoa, what's going on? They're all sort of hungry, and the town is sort of on the skids. Yeah, there's a famine. And then he uses the egg to make a wish to help people, to give them food and drink, and then they become so greedy, and so they put so much pressure on him to continually, they keep asking for more and more and more. He finally breaks the egg in anger, and then the people are hungry, and he realizes what he did, so he tries to fix the egg. Mm. And then... The egg gets mad, and like, I guess at one point, and will only produce whips. Yes. Instead of food. <laughs> so then he ends up whipping all the people in the town to try to teach him a lesson, and then mm. just things just keep going. But then finally, he fixed the egg... He heals the egg partly, and it still produces food and drink, but not unlimited amounts. And that's sort of just exactly how the story ends. Like, you don't know what's going on next or anything like that. Yeah, but it's very, you know, hero's journey structure. He returns from the underworld with the great power, and then he misuses it, and then he kind of has, like, a understands that there's, like, a middle ground. I mean, I don't super know what to make of the egg section, I mean, there's something there about the... Because the story starts with him saying that his family is super rich. And he goes... Well, he says at the at that time, talking about the beginning of the story when the palm wine taps were still alive, the only money they knew was calories. And so everything was very cheap and his family was rich. But in, you notice, as you go through the story, more and more um, modern things start coming up. I think you start reading the story and you get this impression that it takes place in some kind of just like mythic past generalized like past period but then as you read the story he starts to talk about cameras and stuff there's a part where they find this white tree that has like this sort of benevolent mother figure in it and they talk about the tree like watching them like someone who's focusing a camera 
And at one point he mentions guns. Like, he says something about, like, shooting people with a gun. And it's like, then when he gets back to the village, I, I, thin, I wonder if there's supposed to be something there about, like, the passage of time and, like, the way that his family's, like, wealth changes as the world changes around them. I don't know what the egg represents in that situation, though, but, like, the idea that it, like, runs out and he has to figure out something new, that he comes back to the village and has to use something he got from outside to bolster them, maybe it has something to do with this narrative. I don't know. I'm not I think it was fully part, certain. Part of it made me think of, like, sort of, like, this whole idea, like, because, you know, when you realize that he was in World War II and that he came back home to, like, a village, and it's kind of a story of, like, a lot of the writers in the 1950s, mm-hmm. they came back from war and they were changed, but maybe where they came from wasn't changed, so they had a different perspective on life, and I feel like he, all of his experiences affected him, didn't stop him from being a palm wine drinker, but affected him in other ways. And then when he returns back, he's changed, but the town has also changed, but not in a good way. And he's trying to sort of come to grips with, like, what he's expecting out of life and what these people are expecting of him. Yeah. Because he starts it out in the beginning of the story, he's, you know, very hedonistic. He's a, a rich boy who sort of has his own palm wine tapper and he just lives this life where he hangs out with his buddies and drinks palm wine and... and I gotta say, like, not to be gross, but, like, if you're drinking that much palm wine, which I'm sure is very sugary because it's tree sap, what's your what's your, what's your bathroom situation like, my man? Because that's gotta be rough. Well, yeah, I, I, but you know what? The story's, like, surprisingly not... There's no mention of, like addiction or alcoholism or... I, I want to say that I like this element of it. So he starts off and like you said, very hedonistic. He, hang, he likes hanging out and slacking around and loafing about and drinking palm wine. He goes on a long ass journey where he does lots of shit and you know, deals with creatures and evil spirits. He, def- he, ca- he captures the personification of death in a net made of yam vines. Yes. Um, and then makes a deal with him. Yeah. He does all this stuff while he doesn't have any palm wine because he doesn't have his tapster. And then he proves that he can go without the palm wine. He spends 20 years without it, accomplishing all sorts of stuff. And then he gets back home and he's like, you know what? Kind of whipped ass? <laughs> Hanging around drinking palm wine. <laughs> yeah, and then that's sort of how it ends. He's kind of like put out that his friends, is, his friends are mooches. It's kind of like, what was that show, Entourage? Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, it's interesting, but like you said, there's like there's no moral to the story. It's kind of like a guy just boastfully telling a lot of stories. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. I guess there's no, yeah, there's no moral. I don't think I see it as being like an instructive story. I think there's stuff to it. Like there's stuff, I think there's lots of stuff about Grappling with death and your responsibility. Yeah, because if you think that he's a young man who had a very sheltered life, obviously, Mm -hmm. and he was very wealthy and his father protected him. And this may have been the first time that he had to deal with death in his life or deal with not getting what he wanted when he wanted it. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, he, he, he experiences this hardship... (laughs) <laughs> in that he's not allowed to he can't drink any more palm wine and it totally changes his life but then at the end of the day like your life can only get so much more different like unless you stay in the bush forever eventually you just have to go home and being at home is pretty much the same as it was before you left even if you're slightly different on the inside well let's talk about what you liked about the story uh it's funny I think that's the it's a like, you know, there's... I think he gets it. He gets that this, a lot of this stuff is weird and silly. Like, you know, people being menaced by little skulls hopping around on the ground. And this, like, obstinate baby demon. Like... And I like the palm wine drinker as a character. I've talked before about how I like dum-dums and dirtbags as my protagonist. And I like that he's... 
kind of a dirtbag, in that you know he's uh, he's a trickster and a drinkard, uh, and he the story doesn't really judge him for that. It's at no point does he have to learn the lesson that being the way he is is bad. Uh, all of his stuff is more about like spiritual and intellectual and emotional growth than it is anything else. Um, and I think it's just like a really breezy read. Like it's very Slayer pleasant. Felt funny at some points. I mean, you really like it is really goofy, but yeah, not in a weird, disturbing way. I mean, I really like this kind of story that we talked about. I like these like these mythical journeys. I like like folklore. Like th- this, uh, you compared it to the Odyssey, which is another thing I like a lot. But it also reminded me. At times of Journey to the West, which is another, you know, story that I like a lot. That's why I kind of, when I said it, like, almost like, not written in the style of, like, Gilgamesh or Beowulf, because Mm -hmm. this is, like, a linear story, but it does sort of have that sort of exaggerated boastfulness that comes from, like, multiple oral retellings of a story, stories, like, you talked about this when we talked about the Panopolid where the stories change by the the teller who tells the story changes it to fit the needs and what he senses as the expectations of the audience. And I feel that that's the same way. I think that Tutorello knew that he was writing for an English language audience and he kind of upped the kind of zaniness that he might not have thought like he needed to do if he was writing... If he was just transcribing story, uh, like, you know, folklore, like Yorba folk tales or whatever. And I think, like, when you mentioned that he, other African writers criticized him for, for this style of writing, I think he was trying to lean into that sort of oral storytelling tradition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just got, like, this is not a, this is not a great piece of literary criticism, but, like, it's really just got a great, like, vibe. Like, it's this... Yeah, it's kind of this, like, zany, like, jokey... It um, It's like the palm wine drinker is, like, a guy who drinks a lot. And, like, this almost has... It's, like, super exaggerated, but it almost has that, like, somebody telling you an unbelievable story at, like, a bar or a party kind of vibe to it. He's definitely, like, a boastful YOLO. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what he is. Uh, and it's, like, I also really appreciate... <laughs> Any story that can be about death and be funny. That isn't just, like, a self-serious slog or just, like, a misery train. I mean, I'll get on the misery train. I'm, I enjoy I enjoy many works of art that could be described as such. But I like, you know, my response to times that I've encountered death in my life is usually to joke around because it makes me feel better and it's nice to see that reflected in art like it's that's what this feels like it's like yeah because I think I mean one thing that you can clearly say for it is that there's a sense of sort of positivity and like kind of like hopefulness that's in this story yeah I mean even when he he kind of like he tricks death like you said, like he, but he yeah. also releases. That's the thing where the story is very like fast and loose with timeline because he tricks death and captures him and then releases him and then he's like, and that's why we hear about death being about in the world. But also the palm wine tapster died earlier, so it's like, did you release death and cause the concept of death to pervade the world, or was death localized to around where your village was until you did this? <laughs> And like, or like maybe the, he just, he himself has just now understood. I mean, I think that is what's going on, right? That's, it's, it's about, the story isn't, like, this isn't like a just so story, even though occasionally it postures like it is, but it's about this guy's perception of the world. So when it makes those statements that are like, and this is why the world is like that, it's actually saying, and this is why the world as understood by the palm wine drinkard appears to be like this now because he has had this experience and learned this lesson. Well, I think that's why, because like a lot of coming of age stories are not about the character getting experience, but just being exposed to something just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. 
Yeah. But in the palm wine drinker's world, it does. Yeah, he's a very, like we said, he's a very self-centered character. And a lot of this story is about him basically just realizing that there are other people in the world besides himself when he goes out there. And he has, like, that thing, like, um, you know, he meets his wife and marries her. And then there's this whole section where they are separated. And she keeps telling him that, like, I forget her exact wording. But she has this thing that she says that's basically, like, you know, like, in the grand scheme of things, this isn't that long of a separation. And he has to, like, he has to learn about, like, the concept of longing through this experience of having his wife turned into a tree. Because he can't. (laughs) He hasn't, again, he hasn't experienced, like, hardship in his life before now. But this also shows a little bit of personal growth for the palm wine drinker because in the past he would have just walked away. Yeah, yeah. But then he does stay to save his wife. I think it reminds me a lot of, like, Norse mythology. Oh, yeah. About, like, all these tasks. That have to be completed for different magical things to happen. Oh, there's also definitely a huge overlap in that this and Norse mythology are, you know, mythical stories where the character's main motivation is he wants to get drunk. (laughs) Yes. And, like, at one point, like, you know, it's the same thing with, like, you know, you could drink a whole cauldron worth of mead and it would refill himself. He drinks 50 barrels of palm wine a day. At first, I was leaning that this was magical realism. Oh, yeah. But I, mean, I definitely think it's more of like folk tales because the things that are magical that are happening are sort of so extremely out of the normal scape of life that it doesn't seem like it is magical realism. I think there are tonal, stylistic, thematic overlaps between this and magical realism. But I think in execution, the big difference here is like, hmm, how do I put it? Like, the, the, the plot is driven a lot by the supernatural events. Rather than like, magical realism in my mind is always, I always think about it as being like, you know, the old man with wings shows up and they're more concerned about like, how he's fucking up their chicken coop. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's it's like, the magic stuff is ma- very matter-of-fact in magical realism. That's where, like, the realism part comes in, where this is, is more mythical, but, like, there's a flippancy to the supernatural in this that feels very magical, realist. And there's, like, the way things are introduced is very matter-of-fact, where it's like, yeah, yeah, and then, of course, obviously, there was an evil spirit, and, you know, we dealt with that. But they spend a long time dealing with the specifics of the evil spirit, which makes it not quite feel like magical realism. I think that's why it reminds me more of Norse mythology than, say, like, Greek mythology. Well, I think that's a thing, like, that... Because Norse mythology is the same way. Like, yeah, we got a boat made out of people's (laughs) fingernails, but we still have a horse that runs very slowly. I think that, like... I might be talking out of my ass. This is a thought I'm formulating as I am saying it. But I think there's something to... No, I don't know what I'm talking about. I was going to say, there's something to like the difference between like folklore and fantasy. Where it's like, in folklore, the fantastical elements are assumed to be a fundamental part of the world. In the same way that like flesh and blood humans and animals are. But then it's like, high fantasy and shit is, not, is like that too. And I wouldn't describe that as being like folklore. So... I guess it's like folklore assumes a world in which you can walk out your front door and find a monster, but you won't be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's the difference. But, so, like, because... Fantasy either takes place in an entirely different world that's separate from ours, or the fantastical elements are foreign and alien to our normal world when they encroach on it or are secret. Whereas in folklore, the monsters and magic and stuff are just assumed to be part of the world, same world that you and I inhabit. Yeah, that's a good description. And this is like that. This is operating in a much more sort of folkloric ethos, is that the right word? Then it is like a, a fantasy one. But I think it definitely, I mean, if it even if it's just based on sort of folklore, mythology, or or urban fairy tales, it definitely has a feel of, like, an oral tradition of storytelling. And I think that's the key. I think that's the key to understanding 
the stylistic choice of using sort of the pigeon base and like you said the constant repetition of certain information that's important for the story and even at some point the story sort of reads like a like a, like a narrative poem yeah it's very poetic i i think in a lot of parts where you know it is becomes a lot about like the the rhythm and the meter of like what he's saying and you know there are parts where it's almost hard to even really visualize what's happening in the story uh but it makes poetic sense when you read it which i dig i like stuff like that a lot but i think it's interesting and it's worth reading because it does really sort of highlight one a very different style of storytelling and two sort of this area where there's up until the like the 1950s there's really not a lot of world literature that's focused in Nigeria. I mean there are some African stories that are coming out, but like it doesn't really speak to that area and I think this does a really good job of sort of introducing that that culture and that like their tendency for oral storytelling, which I think is very interesting. Because I think about a book I read just a couple of years ago that I really enjoyed. He's not African, he's Jamaican, but Marlon James, his one of his books, the one that I really liked, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which I kind of got dinged a little bit in sort of like the promotion and criticism of it because it was like touted as like, the African Game of Thrones, which is kind of like anything that's the blank of blank really just yeah. wants me to like bark. But like he takes the sort of same storytelling technique, this narrative, and he combines combines like mythology and folk tales to create this sort of very expansive fictional story that's really like high fantasy. It's about um, magic and tribal magic and natural magic and this quest the main character is on a quest and I think it's like he takes the parts of elements of this story and uses it sort of as a basis for like modern storytelling and Marlon James is a really great technical writer I mean his The Brief Killing of Seven The Brief History of Seven Killings? Yes that he writes about um, Bob Marley Mm -hmm. is kind of the same way. It has a very extensive cast of characters. It takes over a long period of time. It goes from like you know Bob Marley's life to like the emergence of the crack epidemic in the United States and he sort of brings all of those pieces. There's the part about the CIA and Cuba trying to make Jamaica into a communist country and he takes all these sort of different pieces and makes one long, really complicated narrative. And he does the same thing in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, but it's specifically based on the culture, African culture and the tribal nature. And I think he does sort of what Tutorella is doing in the 1950s. He takes it to a higher level. I wanted to, there's a quote from him about, uh, from Tutuola about writing The Palm Wine Drinker. Um, he says that I, he wrote it. I says I wrote the palm wine drinker for the people of the other countries to read Yoruba folk tales, folklores. My purpose of writing is to make other people to understand more about Yoruba people, and in fact, they have already understood more than ever before. Um, yeah, so which I is think- cool. I like that. That, uh, but it's also that shows that like he kind of did write the the book in the style in which he speaks because that has the same cadence as the narration in the palm wine drinker. He also said, probably if I had more education, that might change my writing or improve it or change it to another thing people would not admire. Well, I cannot say, perhaps with a higher education, I might not be as popular a writer. I might not write folk tales. I might not take it as anything important. I would take it as a superstition and not write in that line. Well, um, I think you're right. But when I, to go back to what I was saying earlier about primitivism, mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking that. Tutorello was a primitive writer because he wasn't as educated as like you know someone. No, I I got uh, what you were saying. You were comparing it to the art movement, right? Because all the time that I was reading it, I kept thinking about like Rousseau's painting, like specifically like his jungle scenes that he would paint, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of the same thing. When you look at them, they look like landscapes, but then when you look closely, you see like the sort of elements of magical or the surreal or the supernatural. And that's kind of like how this story is. Like on the surface, it's the story of a quest of a mm-hmm. man trying to get 
back. For some reason, his tapper is the most important person in his life to even, that he would even travel to the underworld to get him back but i think it's the same way he paints this sort of picture of this life in this land and on the surface you know it looks just like a regular village life and then as you go deeper there's more strange and weird things going on yeah i would say I, that made me think that almost in a way this story has less in common with magical realist literature than it does with magical realist art mm. that's that has thinking. a very similar vibe yeah because i was thinking about like in the 80s there was a huge um trend in the art world to be concerned with what they called outsider art and outsider art was specifically artists that were untrained by traditional um techniques and were unaware of the history of art mm-hmm. and i feel like if anything Tutorella is more like that. I guess, like he but... Know, he, he knows about literature, and he knows about world fiction, but he chooses to write in a way that's authentic to him. But I think we do have to acknowledge that that definition of outsider, the way that outsider art like that is defined, is very Eurocentric, where it's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's he has said that he doesn't... He's... In that quote, he talks about, oh, if I had a higher education. So it's like, I don't know, it's possible, probable that Tutuola didn't, like, study the classics. But it's he has a knowledge of a literary tradition that he is writing in. It's just outside of the Western Eurocentric literary canon because he's writing in the... Tri- like, I think we make this mistake a lot as a society, as a culture, to... Forget that somebody wrote those folk tales. Yeah. They are works of literature written by an author. They get passed down and modified, and mo- many authors get their hands on them. But he is writing in the same tradition as those, you know, anonymous early writers or proto writers, because they probably were just making it up verbally. Um, so he has a, a tradition that he's part of. Well, I think it's the same thing with outsider art. They're they're outsider art because, according to established art critics, they don't know about art. But but the quality of their art is because the people who are traditionally the critics and the people who train the artists, they don't know about these artists. Yeah, yeah. And so then they sort of put this label on there that they're outsiders because they work outside of the mainstream of what's going you know what's happening in our world but the thing is it's like are they on the outside are they outsiders or are they outside the mainstream or are they are they like sort of trendsetters or like early adopters or something like that because we know later on that a lot of what they consider world literature becomes mainstream literature because success comes to more than sort of just the european writers yeah yeah I don't know. I, I find all of that that space to be. I don't. It's hard to comment on, for me. I also. I wanted to ask though. Like I've also seen, um, like you know, I talked about the criticism of his work, and then I've seen people. Def- there's defenses of it, and one of the people that comes up a lot when in defense of Tutuola's writing as a comparison is James Joyce. Yes. Um, well, that's the same way. Because James Joyce is an educated man, he writes like a stream of consciousness, which is just 99% babble. And unless you haven't read, if you have read Ulysses, you can say that. And I've read Ulysses, so I can say that. (laughs) But I mean, that's a perfect example. Like, is Ulysses as avant-garde because he writes sort of in... I think that's the, the, the thing that, to me, that's highlighted in the comparisons to James Joyce that does kind of expose... Or, you know, highlight their really kind of at least chauvinist, if not just straight up racist. I don't know if there's an appreciable difference between those two things. Um, Standards of the Western literary canon is I think the reason that somebody like Tutuola would be looked down on and somebody like James Joyce would be praised, even though they're both writing in, you know, dialects and styles that are not, you know technically grammatical is that there's this conception that Joyce is doing it as a choice rhyme not uh, intentional 
and that Tutuola can only write like that, and he's not making a stylistic choice, which is stupid and not true. Well, so, like, if Mark Twain... That's another one that comparison that I saw brought up. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like, you're like, well, it's good because James Joyce decided to write like that, but surely this African guy can only write like this. And that attitude um, makes me really angry and is really dismissive of what I think is a genuinely great work of literature. Well, I think that, I mean... If this trend is to read books and say, people need to read this because it's eye-opening, then this book is eye-opening and sure. people need to read it. And I like, his, I like his other stuff, too. Like, I picked this because it was, like, the first one. Um, but I actually re- like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts more. That's even more sort of daring structurally. It's kind of a bunch of connected um, stories, but they're, like, a-chronologically a-chron- ordered it's really cool. We'll probably cover that at some point, you know, later on in the life of the podcast, because it's within the appropriate length for us to cover. I think actually all of his stuff is, uh, but that one in particular is really good. I mean, I liked the story. I thought it was weird. I thought it was ridiculous in some points, and but it was really interesting to read. Yeah. And it's like, not everything that you read has to teach you a lesson about something like some things you read just for the enjoyment of reading them sure the other thing i want to say that i i like that i really like about this and other sort of folkloric stories and, and actual well that's all folklore but you know like older folk tales and myths is that audacity that like Sometimes you get kind of exhausted reading stuff in a more sort of realist tradition even genre stuff where it's like everything has to fit within your the broadly accepted consensus of reality and there has to be there's this like fetishism of like weight and texture and believability whereas it's like you know you don't have to do that and it's fun to read a story where someone realizes like oh i can just like say this this thing grows to being 50 times its size and there's skull hopping around and uh what does she sit on i don't know giant bullfrog whatever like <laughs> you can just do whatever um that i really like it's like the same frustration you feel sometimes when you're watching like cartoons and it's like you know you don't have to care about physics right you could just make the guy's hand stretch really big if you wanted to like why don't you just do that and that's how i feel sometimes and it, these reading these stories is like oh steam valve on that where you're like ah yes people get that it's all kind of bullshit and you could just do whatever but i think there's been a huge trend like especially now for people with this sort of love of like novels that are based on fairy tales i mean how many like retellings of rumpelstiltskin or sleeping beauty or you know i'm reading a book right now where it's two sisters and one turns into a swan and the other one turns into a bear and it's like based on sort of ukrainian folk tales yeah i'm always iffy about that was the thing we've talked about where before where it's like those the oftentimes the way they modernize those stories is by sapping them of this kind of protean chaotic energy that they have and sort of grafting them to our modern consensus reality does that make any sense yeah because like in a modern story about a female in a fairy tale in the modern story she's less of a victim and more of a feminist no that's good i'm just saying where it's like everything has to have a clear cause and effect and it's like well it's the same problem that a lot of people have and we talk about this with a lot of fantasy novels as they get bogged down in the sort of dynamics of how a world works yeah I mean, Tutorola doesn't care. No. Doesn't care how, like, a human being can sell their hand I as a that. rental to another man yeah. to make the most handsome man that could exist yeah. by taking the best parts of every other person that he meets. Also, I just want to talk, like, I know I keep, like, going back, but, like, the idea, I think, is really smart there, where it's, like, he rents all these parts to make his body, and he is the complete gentleman. But it's this idea that, like, the complete person, and I think that's part of what he's getting at with the character arc of the Palm Wine Drinker, the complete person, the, the, the perfect 
ideal person. It doesn't exist. Like, you can only make it by impossibly cobbling together parts of other people. There's no complete gentleman in the world. Well, that's how he meets his wife. She falls for this complete gentleman. She falls for the artifice of this man and then gets tricked. And then here comes this drunkard who's a boaster Mm -hmm. and who is sort of like, he's like a Nazi. He's like, he exaggerates the quality of his skills Except he always has, is on the money, though. <laughs> he exaggerates it and then surprises himself by actually being able to do it. Yes. Well, that's what it is, because one of the things that's most refreshing about this story is the palm wine drinker, he has this sense of confidence that's, like, inspiring. Yeah. Which I think is really nice. Like, he never doubts himself, no matter how... First of all, he never doubts how outrageous something is. Like, when he's getting his head shaved with, like all these different things, he's just kind of like, well, I'll get out of here. I just have to figure out how, but in the meanwhile, just keep on shaving my head with, like, a rock, stick, yeah, a seashell, a piece of someone's house, whatever they can bring to, like, torment him. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say? Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, totally unrelated to this, I had been waiting for a long time for one of my audiobooks to come on a hold in the library, and it did this week. And it's called Children of Bone, Children of Blood and Bone, which was published in 2018. And I talked a little bit about it. It's by Tomi Ademi, and she is a Nigerian American writer. Mm-hmm. And I think this was like a like a great, like, wonderful surprise that, like, I was reading The Pomwad Drinker and then I was listening to an audiobook of this epic fantasy that's set in Nigeria, written by a Nigerian-American female writer. And I was thinking, like, this is a really nice, this is a good, well-written book. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Complex magic, very story arches, like, you know, it's incredibly long and expansive story. And the story is going to be multiple books. There's only two books in a series right now. But I was thinking, like, how great is it that this is sort of like Tutorella's legacy? Yeah, well, he, he spread... I think that he would like to hear that. I mean, he said that he wrote it to teach, show people these Yoruba folktales, and they've been spread out into the popular consciousness enough that now they can serve as a reference and anchoring point for a fantasy story in the same way that um, you know, like Tolkien was using Norse mythology and, you know, like English folktales as an anchoring point for his fantasy stories. Well, I also think it's great that at this time now that a writer can take the same influence of the Yoruba folktales and create a fantasy novel or mm-hmm. fantasy series and there'd be a market for it. I mean, it's very well written. It's very interesting. And it really sort of showcases the sort of history of of Africa, which I think is sort of hidden a lot of times in fantasy and sci-fi. We talked a lot about... Well, yeah, it's very Eurocentric feel, like we talked... Yeah. You know, and I think we talked a lot about, like, when we talked about N.K. Jemison, about African-American women being involved in writing science fiction Mm -hmm. and how that's, like, a really great and interesting point of view that they bring to science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Which I think that, you know, Tutorella might not be a fantasy writer, he might not be a sci-fi writer, mm-hmm. but I feel like his influences can be seen in modern sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. I mean, definitely, if he was around today, he'd probably be into New new Weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, New Weird has a lot of, <laughs> and Slipstream has a lot of that chaotic protein energy that I like about this and other things. I also was like, as a kid, was hugely into Tall Tales, uh, which is very similar. We've been doing a lot of like, maybe this season is like mythology and folk tales and like... We're about to hit totally the opposite gear. Well, I think we like, after like a, a, you know, like a episode arc that was like four or five books in a row that dealt with fantasy mythology and folk tales this is our next one's kind of be like like the scratch on the record yeah. like how did we get here uh do we just want to go into announcing what we're doing next yes do you have anything else in your notes that you want to no cover? just i feel like i really think that it should be like required reading like i think it's an interesting point of view and i feel like you feel positive and uplifted which is hard to do in this day and age and i think it's worth 
that sort of enjoyment, like taking an hour or two and, and reading something like this. Yeah. So. Uh, so, obviously, for the next episode, we're going, well, we're, you know, we alternate comics and novellas. So, we're doing the final volume of our Animal Man series, volume three. Which also has a lot to do with folktales and mythology. That's true. Think about it. Uh, and, well, and just storytelling and fiction in general. Uh, so we're going to do that, and then starting, I have no idea what, we recorded these ahead, I have no idea what month that's going to go up, but the next, uh, novella after that is, uh, going to be The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Kane. That's one of my favorites. He's one of my favorite writers, and I love that time period in American literature, and I think it'll be really fun. Yeah. And then we also have this sort of component, the synergy of talking about the novel and a movie, which is always fun. Yeah, we'll try to watch the movie beforehand. Yeah, I'm going to try and watch the movie before we talk about it. I think I've seen the movie before. I don't think I've read the book. I think I maybe read something else. Did you read Double Indemnity? I think so. I think I read that. Uh, but yeah, so we'll, that'll be a total change of pace from all of this mythology stuff we've been covering. So that'll be fun to get into that. Um, spoiler, spoiler alert. Stay, stay tuned. tuned. Bye, everyone.